This week we continue our series on life and what it means to be a Christian. And one of the most important things that we can do as a Christian is witness our faith because this is so life-changing to have faith for other people. This sermon was originally recorded November 1st, All Saints Day, 2015. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I thought instantly of the movie Titanic. Don't they go a cappella for one of the verses in the movie? They sing that if you didn't recognize it. I guess I was the only one. Okay, the, uh, uh, we are continuing our series. We're talking about life and what it means. Many of you are guests. We're talking about life. What does it mean to be a Christian, and how does that function, and how does that work out? And today we're eventually going to get what we're going to talk about, which is witness. But before we get there, I think we need to talk about restoration. So restoration is a real common uh, idea in Scripture. Uh, restoration, when you look back and think, okay, there's kind of eras that happen, so this will take a little bit. There's eras that kind of happen or times. It talks about like the present time or the future time. It talks about that all the time in the Bible. So the future time, of course, would be when we're looking forward to heaven. In the meantime, we're in the middle. We're kind of hanging out in this middle time. We'll talk about the frustrations that go with that. And then there was a former time, which the present age, once Jesus comes in, we're kind of in the present age, and then we have the former age. So this is, I feel like I'm John Hagee with the whiteboard. Have you ever seen that guy at like 2 in the morning? Um, so he, he puts, connects all these things. They, um, you shouldn't listen to John Hagee at 2 in the morning. So restoration is something very common in Scripture, and I thought of it, and we have this kind of older time hymn that we just sang, Almighty Father, Strong to Save. You'd recognize it's kind of a turn-of-a-century thing, which thought of the war, which read to a story that I just read. Um, I've just recently read two books, both of which were involved about World War II and the bombings and the effect, and it was on both sides of it. And then I ran across this story about Our Lady in Dresden, uh, but this is probably the most famous of all. Has anyone ever been here? It's in East Berlin. Uh, this is the Kaiser Wilhelm uh, Memorial Chapel. So this was bombed out during the, by the Allied forces. So this is on the East German side, in, um, on the East German side. So it was bombed out. And then what they did is they built in, you can see it in two spots. Thankfully, the sun is not super bright. This first one that looks like a modern... Um, a skyscraper, and then on the right is where they actually worship. You can go into both sections if you go to it. It's actually beautiful. If you're during the day, it's all blue and kind of cool. I thought this is kind of lame, though. You know, like, you know, I, I like that it's, it's there and it's really neat, except they just built something around it, which doesn't, I didn't think that was as cool. I think there's a cooler story, and that's Our Lady in Dresden. Here's a picture of it in the 1800s. So it's built in the 11th century, and kids, since you're here, when they, they count centuries, this is always tricky with history, zero to 100 counts as the first century. So we're actually talking about like the 1000s. So they built this and the, the style of it, if you can kind of tell, they call it a Romanesque style, which means they couldn't figure out how to get really big windows very well. And it's really stony. That's how I would describe it. If you see something and it seems like, wow, there's a lot of stone in that, then it's probably Romanesque. It's not until later on they get like 1300s, they start getting into like the Gothic stuff with, I, I can't even say this without my kids giggling, flying buttresses. Like... <laughs> very mature. Um, once they started to support the weight with all these different things, they figured out um, engineering that they could do that. Then that's where you get these humongous stained glass windows that are beautiful at all kinds of churches. But the story behind this church is it was a Catholic church. It was called Our Lady uh, of Dresden. And so the German name for that, as you can imagine, Frauen Kirche, which sounds real German, doesn't it? Have you ever seen the commercial where they, I mean, it's like a YouTube thing where they compare the German language with every other language? 
it's hilarious because German is like, I don't know who invented this. It's like engineers or something because to, to say I love you in Latin, in Latin seems like is about as least romantic language you could get, even though it's the beginning of all romantic languages, you'd say te amo, right? That sounds pretty good, right? Like you could see in a love letter, te amo. I had a friend who, uh, when I was going to school, he would read his Greek. I probably told you this. But his name's Phil. He grew up in Colombia, and he would read, I would feel like the most sultry Latin reading of all time. He'd be like, te amo. Like when he would read it, we'd all like look around, and then he does this with the Greek. It's really an unusual. You know how they say, I love you in German? Ich liebe dich. Like, <laughs> I don't know how you can make that look good. You know, like that's, that, that's, but... Frauenkirche, Frauenkirche. That's a, that's a, this is Frauen. They didn't even change the name, so it's obviously named after Our Lady. It was named after Mary, um, but they it became a Lutheran church. So it's a Catholic church up until the Reformation, and then it became a Lutheran church, which is kind of a cool story, I think. Back to Restoration. Um, we have all these places where people feel like they can meet God and be with God. And the first one, of course, is in the Garden of Eden. There's this place where God walks in the cool of the day, and you can have communion with God. Later on, that rolls into, like, the tabernacle uh, and the temple. I think I got a picture. I'll come back to that in a second. Here's a, here's a rendition of the temple that Solomon built. So that's about 1,000 years. These are actually, this one's 1,000 years before Jesus, and the one we looked at before is 1,000 years after so you can kind of see those together. But do all of these, do these work? Like, is this the ultimate fulfillment? You can imagine the joy that would come when you finish something like this. You can imagine the joy that happened when they worked so many years to build something like the Our Lady in Dresden, but it's not quite there. And there's kind of this, if you read Scripture, there's this kind of sense of angst. Like, we, we just haven't made it there. Here's a description in the Psalms. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound in all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord. For he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. They had trouble on a day-to-day basis finding joy at the moment. They longed, there's this, there's this longing to say, I can't wait till the day where things are right. And you can read that throughout the whole Old Testament. They're looking forward to a Savior. They're looking forward to a Savior, and finally that Savior comes. And, and the things that they set up for temporary places of joy eventually get destroyed. The temple lasts for about 400 years, and then it's destroyed. It's done. Every brook is, I mean, every brick is smashed. That's the same story with Dresden. Uh, this is a picture of Our Lady um, after the Allied forces bombed um, Dresden. And here's another picture, and thankfully because of the light. So here you can imagine that beautiful dome. It's an octagon shape, and they had put a memorial to Martin Luther. That's Martin Luther right here. I think that's his feet, and that's Martin Luther there. It stayed this way for, um, and I think this is why it's a cool story. It stayed this way until about the 1980s. And it was a memorial to, like, an anti-war. That's the laziest memorial you could get. You just don't do anything with it, and you say, this is an anti-war memorial. They, they just didn't want to clean up all the rubble. Well, someone came in and said, you know what? That, this is, like, the centerpiece of our city. Like, I can't, we don't have that same thing, but you could imagine, like, the state capitol in Denver just being imploded. 
or like we came from Seattle, like the Space Needle. Everyone thinks of the Space Needle, 1962. Like if that got demolished, that's like the skyline piece, or the Twin Towers, of course. You've got to say, what are we going to do about this to try and make it right? So they're, they're wrestling with this. And there was supposed to be something there, I think. We'll touch on th- some things that when you look at what is the real issue that people are struggling with, that what's the angst that causes? And you can go all the way back to Adam and Eve, and I think there's maybe four or five things that you can identify. One is this alienation that happens, that spiritually we're alienated from God. Emotionally within yourselves, and what I mean by that is when you take a look at yourself, just think of it this way. In heaven, will we be spiritually alienated from God? Of course not. Emotionally, how will you fit? You'll be completely fulfilled in heaven, but here there's this sense of angst that says that something's not right. Like it's not, you struggle with your own identity. You struggle to find your worth. Physically from nature, we see that. Socially from each other, the effects of sin that have come into this world, and ultimately death. Well, with the city of Dresden, they, they said, we've got to try and fix this thing up, but we don't want to do it just like Berlin did it. Berlin just like put up a new structure next to it. And, and they said, this is what we're going to do. We are going to catalog each of the pieces that we have available. So they took every single piece that they could find in that pile of rubble and they catalog it. And they said, you know what? Instead of just like having this pile of rubble and something else, we want to build something new. So can you see the dark parts in that building? So all the dark parts are from when it was bombed. So for example, like here, here, and here, that's not an architectural kind of look they're going for. That's part of the original. They could find that much of the original. All the other parts are from the original, and then they got the new parts to fit around it. And this is a process that they started in the 90s, and it took over 10 years with all the technology that they have, and they cataloged all these things. Why do I bring this up? This is what it tells us. So like, we, we long to see the Savior to come, right? And, and we're excited for it. And you can imagine all these Old Testament believers. They can't wait till Jesus shows up. And then suddenly the Savior is here, and the, you know, the angels sing. And the shepherds see it, and they, they see this guy commit, uh, doing miracles and people being fed and all these cool, amazing things. And it says, after his death, he is raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only to the present age, but to the one to come. Things should be settled now, right? Like, the, the thing that they were looking forward to in the Old Testament, the Savior is finally here. And it says that Christ is ruling in the heavenly realms and everything is under him, all dominion and power and glory. You know, but when I take a look at life, it doesn't really seem like that, does it? Like, if, I, if I'm a teacher and I say, that person rules the classroom, you see a teacher, and they say they rule the classroom, what's your impression of the, what's going on in that classroom? Like, all eyes are up front when that person talks, and there's no side-talking, and everyone listens, and they do their homework. That's someone who is, Jesus is ruling. Does it feel like that when you look around the planet? Like, if Jesus is, if if a teacher controls a classroom, and Jesus is now in total control, and he has this position above all other things in this present age we live in, why is it that we have, like, um, explosions in a nightclub in Romania? Why do we have shootings in Arizona? Why? Let's be selfish for a second. You know, let's not worry about the, the world outside these doors. Let's just think about yourself. If Jesus is ruling things, 
for our good, it says in Romans. What is going on? Like, why is there so many... What? Why, when we go through these things about, like, pain and, and trouble and uh, this alienation, you feel alienated at times from God, and why physically is your body breaking down, and why... Um, emotionally you struggle within yourself why do you socially you struggle to make connections with people what's going on i wish we could see the finished product you know like right now that jesus would come and then suddenly everything was smooth but that's not quite how it works and i think how many people how did that skip how many people do you know that are sitting like right here as Christ has come to build up his church again, how many people do you know, including yourself, that are struggling about where does this sit? How many people, when they were building this structure, just this building, do you think said, like, what, is it worth the trouble? How many think, you read movies, right? You, you watch movies and there's all this restoration that comes around and there's these cool pictures of restoration or someone gets restored up to their position. And sometimes it doesn't seem like it's worth the trouble. But God looks at you and he says, uh, you're worth the trouble. And so Jesus actually comes to this earth and he takes on the spirituality of, and, he, and he takes on sin and death and he walks among us and he catalogs you. He goes through all that trouble. He goes through all that expense on the cross because he makes you right. Why do I bring all this up? God calls you a city on a hill and here's some final versions, which I can't wait to go to Dresden now. I feel like I should go there. And this is one of the coolest pictures, I think, of the whole thing. You can see the statue restored, and this now a centerpiece. You know you're restored under God. You know you are right with God. You know your sins are forgiven. You know where you stand, and you know that we still live in this world of angst. And God has called us to be a city and a witness to that world. And if you understand this, there's a whole group of people who do not understand this. And what I'm saying is, let's think about ourselves for a second, but now let's think about a world. And I think there's three things that we need to do, and I'm keeping it a little bit shorter today um, because we have a baptism and communion and a number of things. Three things. Number one, if you're going to know that you're restored and that this is what Christ has done, we have to go and talk to people about Jesus because he's the only one who does it. We can't talk about, like, just the weather. You can't just talk about it. We said this before. If you go into a room and you're going to talk about Jesus, if you're not going to talk about Jesus, who is? And so we've got to talk about Jesus to change lives. And number two, we have to be a people who are changed by the truth of what we know. We live in a society, and we live in a society where things are true if you believe they're true. Did you ever notice that? It's kind of like fashion, I think. Um, and it, it spills over to spirituality. So I'll give you the example of fashion. Uh, when my brother came home from college once, I was in high school, he came home with Birkenstocks. I think they're like the ugliest sandals of all time. I remember seeing these in person going like, those are terrible. A month later, I had a pair, you know, because this is what was cool, right? And the same thing happens with, I use the example of Zuba pants. Remember the ones with the animal prints and they're baggy? Like, someone is telling you that these are cool, and in your mind and your heart, you know that these are not cool, but somehow you end up buying these pants. The same thing, I think, happens modern day in Ugg, Ugg boots. All the ladies in my family have Ugg boots, and the first time I thought of them, I thought, that is the most appropriate name I've ever heard. Like... But then suddenly there's something that grows on you. What, what, what has changed? 
it's just because now you believe it's true, it's true. And that's not how the gospel works. And I think that's the confidence we, we have to be able to step forward with the gospel of Christ. It's not that we just think it's true, so that makes it true. And when we waver, the, the truth wavers. The truth is Jesus really did come. And the truth is Jesus really came to this earth. And the truth is Jesus really died on a cross. And the truth is Jesus has really restored us through the gospel. But with that, the thing that is going to change lives is not the words that we speak. I think it's the actions that we use. And so not only do we have to talk about Jesus, not only do we recognize our own transformation, but we recognize in order to change people, it has to be changed in our actions. When Jesus goes to his disciples at the end, when Jesus goes way at the end and um, he's praying for them just before he dies, he says, Lord, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Set them apart. Your words, I don't think, are going to change a lot of people. But what is going to change a lot of people is when they see the way that you live and it's going to be different. And I'll give you some examples. Um, when you try and speak the gospel, how do you do that in a way that is sympathetic to where someone's at, but you still do that in a loving and in an authoritative way to say that this is truth? How do you sympathize where people are at but still speak convincingly? How do you, how do you stand before your neighbors as you struggle and they struggle and they say, you know what, this world doesn't seem all that great. How do you stand before your neighbors and, and witness by your actions? And I'll give you an example. What does it say if you're totally undisciplined about the message that you follow? What does it say if you're going around life scared? What does it say if you're worried about all these things? What Christ has called you to do, and he made you a city and a hill. He's, made you, he's finished the structure, and we're not quite there yet. What Christ has called you to do, is be his witness not only with his words, but be your witness with his actions. And the way that you handle death, the way that you handle pain, the way that you interact with people, and the way that you actually say, I'm going to love people. When Jesus, my final thing, Jesus goes to his disciples and he's talking about, um, if you love, and I feel like that got lost too. It totally got lost. Jesus goes to his disciples and he says, if you do all that is lovable, so in other words, if you love the neighbors who love you, um, that's no big deal, the pagans do that. And this is from the message, I've got that paraphrase here. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anyone can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. God has restored you. God has changed you. And it's really easy just to talk to the people that you love about that. And so take a minute to think of three people that you can hardly stand. I'm smirking because it's an awkward thing to say in church, think of people you can't stand. But there's, there's people that aren't lovable and there's people who are not even likable. So think of three people that are really difficult for you and say, how can I show what is to come? How can I show the beauty of what Christ has made in us? How can I show the restoration and the way that I act towards them, the way that I talk towards them? How can I show them the peace of God? How can I show them the love of God? And how can I ultimately show them that in humility, Christ didn't come just to die for the perfect. He came to die for the imperfect. Amen. Uh, Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we struggle uh, with our own restoration, uh, help us recognize our own sinfulness. Help us recognize that as we stand before you, 
um, that, that can't be taken care of by our own actions. But help us on this day of all saints to recognize that you have paved the way through your body and blood to take away the sins of the world. Um, help us change so that we reach into people's lives and we live the way that you expect, not as a way to convert them, but instead a way to show what your gospel has done so that in this middle time, the glories of heaven have not yet been here, but help us to focus on this time where people are struggling and we're struggling to live our lives out um, in a way that gives glory to you. We ask this in your name. Amen.